Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 174. So glad you could join me. Uh, John Brown is our main guest. He'll be here in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this if you love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button, share, make sure you're subscribed on Facebook, like ring the bell, or not ring the bell, click the uh, hearts and stuff, because hearts are way better than likes, laughs are really good too, they like a lot of uh, emotive responses rather than just liking things, so click stuff, share stuff, it's all good, you can help spread poetry everywhere, which is what we're always trying to do with Rattle, and, and the Rattlecast especially. So uh, to begin, um, neither of the poets or spawn poets are able to make it today, they both have very good reasons. Um, but um, yesterday's poet was right here. Um, you recognized her from, um, we published her once before in Rattle itself, and she's been, she was in Poets Respond back in the spring talking about um, the war on Ukraine, where she's from. And uh, this is Julia Kolchinsky-Dasbach uh, with another poem, a follow-up on the war in Ukraine, what's going on right now. Um, and I'll tell you what she writes right here. Julia says... Um, the missiles continue to fall in Ukraine. Millions lose power and heat and even water. It is well below freezing all across the country. On Christmas Eve, when many families in the U.S. and around the world gather around a tree decorated by hundreds of lights at my birthplace, Ukraine, this day will mark 10 months of brutal full-scale war. It is too easy to grow used to the barrage of terrible news, too easy to forget that during this time of celebration, suffering continues. If you are able, consider contributing to an aid organization that helps those who are in Ukraine and refugees trying to flee. I recommend Ukraine Trust Chain as an all-volunteer nonprofit run by Ukrainian immigrants in the U.S. They work with local volunteers on the ground, going directly into areas hard to reach by larger international organizations. Uh, Trust Chain provides urgent food, medical supplies, and transportation to safer regions. Um, that is Julia uh, Dasbach's note. And then here's Julia reading the poem. The Ukrainian flag stares through the balsam fir from Larry's trees. Just take it, he said, and I doubted generosity. Are you sure? Still $30 short. I've learned nothing is free in this country. His white mustache curled to a smile. I'm Larry, and this is the South, and these are my trees. How easy to claim what soil gives, to own trees and bodies, to give them away to strangers so my children can hang the shatterproof ornaments and ask for more light. While in Ukraine, the bulbs won't spark, the heat won't radiate, the soil will stay snow-covered and theirs, and in my house, strings and strings of electric rainbow dazzle, trail the evergreen and walls, and wind my children's small limbs. Here in Arkansas, it's barely cold enough to light a fire, but we can and do with oak and crabapple. We home its added glow, so everything smells of invited smoke and pine, not invaded smoking sky, where the windows flicker with candlelight and shellings, and tomorrow I will bake gingerbread and fry latkes and light the candles forbidden in my Soviet childhood. Tomorrow I will pray to a God I don't believe in, 
for more miracle. Tomorrow I will still have been born from darkness and wick, and tonight when I lift my daughter to place the silver star on the highest branch, and my American mother-in-law takes a photo, the only light will be the yellow, blue horizon of the flag frozen in the window behind us. Yeah, beautiful poem, especially that ending. Once again, that was on Julia kolchinsky Dasbach with the Ukrainian flag stares through the balsam fir from Larry's trees. That was yesterday's poem on Poets Respond. <clears throat> um, and now we have another poem tomorrow. Um, this is A Gazal of Mangoes. And um, it's by um, Bavika Sikka, who is an Indian poet, so can't be here because it's like 6 a.m. in India right now. Um, but it's a beautiful gazal. Um, the story that uh, that um, Bavika is responding to is this in, in, Karnataka, in Karnataka. Here's a screen view. In Karnataka, the recent cyclone-induced rainfall resulted in fungal disease to mango crops, shattering the dreams of farmers who were hoping for a good harvest this year. In other news, the headmaster of a school in Mandya, Karnataka, was taken into custody for sexually exploiting his female students. Um, so here is um, here is um, Bavika's poem, I'm a gazelle of mangoes. Summertime, our kitchen counters spill with mangoes. Him sugar, hapis, chaza, langra, and other mangoes. Ma and I, we ride on a rickshaw to Gariat Bazaar, where vendors sell crates full of plums, leiches, and mangoes. Ma squeezes the fruits tenderly to learn if they are plump. Her sari is block-printed with paisleys, upturned mangoes. Later, I slip into my boyfriend's flat. In his drawing room hangs a silk painting, Nur Jahan in an orchard of mangoes. He says he wants to end things, and my throat tightens like I've swallowed hard, fibrous pits of ripe mangoes. In Kayasapura, a farmer shields his eyes, surveys his trees. He grows badami, Karnataka's prized Alfonso mangoes. This year, the rain from the cyclone has ruined his yield. His hopes shrivel up and drop off like blighted mangoes. One Sunday, after math class, my tutor offers me tea, cha and sondesh, crumbled cheese and pureed mangoes. He asks me to wait after the other pupils leave. He offers me a long hug, says my breasts are firm like mangoes. Bavi, do you remember what Ma said? A woman gives up a part of herself if she chooses to go where a man goes. And that is a, a guzzle for tomorrow's poem of the day. And once again, that is by uh, um, Bavika Sika, a guzzle of mangoes. Um, and that is going to be tomorrow's poem. So um, hope you enjoyed that. Still trying to get some audio from Bavika too. Hopefully we'll get that tonight. In the meantime, we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest. Um, John Brem is here. Uh, we'll be there just about, so sit tight, hang right where you are, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, like I said, today's guest is John Brem. John Brem was born and raised in Lincoln, Nebraska, and educated at the University of Nebraska and Cornell University. He's the author of three full-length books of poetry, Sea of Faith, Help is on the Way, and No Day at the Beach, which is what we'll be focusing on today. 
um, from the University of Wisconsin Press, also a chapbook, The Way Water Moves from Foom Press. His uh, collection of essays, The Dharma's Poetry, was recently released by Wisdom Publications. We'll be talking about that a lot today, too. Um, as a companion to his acclaimed anthology, The Poetry of Impermanence, Mindfulness, and Joy, also from Wisdom Publications. John teaches for Mountain Writers Series in Portland, Oregon, and for the Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver, Colorado. He offers a monthly poetry as spiritual practice gathering with his wife, Phallus Boyd, leads mindfulness retreats that incorporate um, Feldenkrais <laughs> awareness through movement lessons, guided meditation, and mindful poetry discussions. He lives in Portland, Oregon, and he can tell us how to spell, how to pronounce Feldenkrais. But uh, here is John Brem. Thanks so much for joining us, John. It's great to have you. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be here. Yeah, and you got it right pretty yeah, much. Feld- well, I, I worked through it. It took a while, but... <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, um, so do you want to start out by reading a poem so we can get the feel of uh, your work? Yeah, I thought I'd, I'd begin with the first poem in the book, and it's called Back Then. Great. Everything was better back then. Even my nostalgia was better, more piercing, more true. I miss missing things that much, but not as much as I missed missing things back then. Even my anxieties about the future which have indeed come to pass, were more vivid back then, more real. Reality itself seemed more real back then. This clanking stage play only a fool could find convincing. I fell for it all, and it killed me again and again. Ghosts of myself wander the cities I've lived in, thinking of other cities, imagining me here, imagining them. We nod to each other across the years, the way the last line of a poem will sometimes look back wistfully at the first. Yeah, and that was um, back then, the first poem in No Day at the Beach, John Brem's newest book. Um, and John, I was really fascinated to see, you know, I don't um, know much about any of the poets. Like, I just, I don't, like, participate much in the poetry community, actually. And, um, you know, we just publish poems, and that's all I know. So I was really interested to see um, when, you, uh, when I read your bio and started looking at your work that you have so much work in um, Buddhism and spirituality through poetry. Um, can you start out just talking a little bit about that? Because I think that's going to be the focus. It's the topic of the book, too, No Day at the Beach. Um, you yeah. know, can you talk about what, maybe what the Dharma of poetry is and maybe what Dharma is and just give an introduction of, to what you're talking about here for everybody? Uh, yeah, well, that's those are all big questions uh, that require subtle and complicated <laughs> answers. I'm not sure I can provide, but um, yeah. So I, I've been, you know, meditating for 20 years and a, kind of a student of the Dharma for a long time. And uh, in the last five or or 10 years, the, the my spiritual practice, my Buddhist practice, and my writing practice have started to converge or become more integrated and um the the spiritual dimension of poetry is what i find most compelling so in the dharma of poetry the first the first sentence of that book of essays is this is a book about poetry as a source of wisdom and um that seems to me not the only thing that one turns to poetry for but for me that's really foreground now. Like I, I, I turn to poems for what they can show me about how to live my life, about how to wake up, about how to remember my true nature. And um, I'm working on a new anthology now, and I'm I'm writing some essays, and I'm 
thinking about poems as um, vehicles to help us remember who we really are at the most fundamental level beneath cultural and familial conditioning, um, the identities that we assume or have foisted upon us, that there's a kind of untainted essence underneath that. And that, it seems to me, is what poems speak to most profoundly. So that's that's what I, I'm interested in. Um, yeah. And the Dharma, the, you know, the, the Dharma has, the Dharma can refer, refer to specifically the Buddhist teachings, um, but it can refer more broadly to the truth of things, the way things are. And so that's, that's how I think of the Dharma of poetry, poems that show us the truth of things, the truth of who we are, the truth of, uh, of life, of our uh, interconnectedness with all, all of life. So, and how did you yeah. come to to view it that way? To view poetry that way? Um, did did the poet poems come first, and then you realized did you find sort of Buddhism through poetry, or did you find poetry through Buddhism, or did they develop at the same time? Um, you know, how did you, you enter know, this sort of space that you're in? Yeah, I mean, they kind of there's they're sort of co arising for me when I first started writing. Uh, I had a good friend who was a meditator. And so I was in my early 20s and, um, you know, he taught me how to meditate. And so those two practices started about the same time. I wrote, started writing poems before that, um, but I didn't really become a serious meditator. I didn't start doing retreats until about 22 years ago. Um, and since then, it's been a gradual kind of integration of uh, spiritual practice and my writing practice so they they kind of arose together and then uh have kind of deepened uh, the integration um and uh yeah you know I, I think when i was in graduate school like the way poems were talked about often seemed um kind of lifeless to me it, it seemed like especially in the phd programs and the more academic uh, teachers. Um, and I didn't, it didn't appeal to me. I, I felt like it was missing something that felt really important to me. So I started to kind of detach from the academic world and the academic way of kind of reading poems. And so um, that, that led me to like, well, what, you know, what is it, you know, what, what is it that poems do, I think, most importantly, and that started to lead me down a path of investigating the spiritual dimension of poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear another poem so we make sure we uh, we get him in, but I want to talk a lot more about this. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll read Swift's. This is um, the next poem, not the very next poem in the book, but the next one I want to read. Swift's for my father. <clears throat> Early fall, the light thin and brittle. And if it's true that deprivation is a gift, I accept the gift. I walk down to Wallace Park to watch the swifts that roost every September in the Chapman School's tall brick chimney. The charming swifts with their long forked tails and swept back wings, 10,000 of them swerving and darting in the evening sky, a flowing expandable spiral of birds clearing the air of insects and riveting the wandering human mind. Tonight, there must be 300 spectators, a whole hillside of us, ordinary people whose wings fell off eons ago, 
who traded flight for speech and have regretted it ever since. Sodden and earthbound as we are, except for our lifted eyes, our oohs and ahs that show we're still alive when the peregrine falcon dives in and knifes one out of the air, which we boo or cheer sometimes simultaneously. We love this passion play of form and formlessness, the bird's shifting patterns flung out like a whiplash of water or school of fish above the stationary human school, then drawn tight together, a miracle they don't crash into each other, a miracle of echolocation until you see them as they truly are, a single organism, a body made mostly of air and quick decisions, jagged motions that gradually cohere, a poem, in other words. It takes the flock a full 20 minutes to funnel down into the chimney, and it seems a living smoke pulled back into the still and sleeping fire. So beautiful, I forget for a moment my father's death, or I turn my mind away from it, or no, I open my grief to accommodate this wonder and wonder what he might have thought of it were we standing here together, the kind of thing we never did and now will never do except in my imagination, that unchanging inner sky where the swifts take flight whenever I want them to, and my father cannot die. Yeah, and that was um, Swifts, again, um, an earlier poem in the book, uh, No Day at the Beach by John Brem that we're talking about today. Um, so you mentioned um, being really interested in what poems do, like what they're actually doing. And I've been really interested in that, too. And it is, I think there's a tendency not to want to talk in like broad you know, ways as if it's like universal to what poems are doing. But it's always felt to me like it actually is broad and universal. And um, it feels like poems all have a thing in common, which is a kind of a meditative, you know, a meditative consciousness, I'd say, or something like that, that, you know, there's, there's this some other dimension that we're accessing of our own psyche when we make not just yeah. poetry, but all art. And um, one of the quotes that's yeah. sort of up in my head all the time is um, from Elizabeth Bishop. It's from a letter she wrote to somebody who I can't remember, but she said, um, um, what we want from great art is the same thing that's necessary for its creation, and that is a self-forgetful, perfectly useless concentration. And uh, and that sort of self-forgetfulness is so key to all. Like if you talk, you know, I've interviewed, God, 300 poets probably at this point, mm -hmm. and everybody talks about losing themselves, losing a sense of time, being lost in a poem, not knowing where they're going, all those kind of things where it's this, they're going somewhere they don't know. You know, that they're not, it's not a usual mental space and everyone's going, when a poem's working, that's where people are going. So, so how do you conceive of that? And, and how can you talk about like what, what poems are doing? Like, what are they actually doing? Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful. Thing. I mean, Elizabeth Bishop is my favorite poet. And, and I quote that very quote passage from one of her letters in, in the essay on Elizabeth Bishop in my, in, in the Dharma of Poetry. So I'm, I'm just delighted that you, you picked that. Um, feels very simpatico. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that um, poems come out of, well, you know, great poems or inspired poems come out of flow states of consciousness, where the small self falls away, the egoic concerns fall away, and the mind gets bigger and more spacious. And there is access to a kind of consciousness that we don't typically access in the course of our daily lives as we're going about doing what needs to get done and when we're caught in our conditioning 
and um you know, react reactive and and uh, you know, deal you know, focused on our problems in a in a very egoic way of grasping and aversion, but the great poems that get written come out, I believe, of these flow states, and and they embody those flow states, and and make them available to us as readers. So when you read a poem and you enter it in the same spirit, not the analytical spirit but a appreciative spirit a uh, spirit of imaginative deep engagement then we can absorb we can participate in the flow state of consciousness that the poet was in and that is still alive in the poem and available to us so and flow states of consciousness seem to me inherently spiritual um inherently universal and um deeply connecting and uh wonderful refreshing to experience for sure so yeah i think that's really i think that's really crucial yeah i mean it it feels spiritual to me i I remember you know taking classes in comparative religion and as an undergraduate just for fun and um and talking about how the you know all religions sort of have the same sense of motion which is from a self-consciousness to a global consciousness or to a to a higher Mm -hmm. consciousness and um and it seems like that's what poems do and and so it feels like like poems feel like prayers, a kind of secular prayer. Would, would you say that? Yes, yeah. I think that's that's a wonderful way to describe them. Yeah, it, it's a way of making contact with the sacred, uh, remembering that the sacred actually exists and is alive, and that we can, and, you know, we can get lost in illusion. We can get cut off from that. Poems are wonderful reminders of the sacred. Um, they take us there in a in an embodied way because they're not they're not just intellectual exercises. They engage our emotions and our imaginations and our bodies, and so there's a fullness and a richness of the poetic experience that I think is is a wonderful conduit for uh, that kind of spiritual energy to enter our, our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so often, you know, our culture is designed to make us forget all that. Um, and so we need these reminders to, to, to bring us back to that fundamental connection with all things. Yeah. yeah and, and why would you say that is? Why do you think our culture is so resistant to that kind of, of spiritual space or, or that kind of that kind of consciousness that rises above the, you know, deterministic, materialistic plane that we're we're buying things on? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's, you know, there's a long, complicated answer to that. But I, I think that, you know, you named it the materialism. And, you know, we have built an economic system that is absolutely dependent on people being in a state of grasping and aversion, uh, precisely those uh, uh, afflictive mind states that the Buddha identified as the source of our suffering. But if people were really content, and and focused on uh, the spiritual life, we, the economy would collapse. Hmm. I mean, it's it's it thrives on on discontentment, on on dissatisfaction, and so um, I mean, it's not like people sit around in a room and say, "How can we make people, you know, unhappy and dissatisfied?" Although they might, <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. Well, but, actually, you know, but yeah. yeah. Well, just now that you, you put it that way, I hadn't really thought of it, but like, 
you know, in Buddhism, you know, all is suffering, all is dukkha, and there's the two sort of hands or the sides of the coin or, or wanting something you don't have or fearing to lose something that you do have. And yeah. uh, and that could be described as every advertisement ever <laughs> with uh, trying yeah. to make you want something you don't have or lose something that you don't have. And so in a way, um, you know, our, our culture is built, the advertising culture anyway, that the, the capitalist culture is built on um, on suffering, if you if you see yeah. it through that perspective. Yeah, it, it exploits that instead of instead of trying to heal that that sense of separation and grasping and aversion as the Buddha tried to do, it sees that like that's a fundamental part of you know our human nature, and it exploits that, it exacerbates it, and exploits it for you know its own purposes. So it's challenging, you know, and we're so conditioned we we just swim in that water, and we're not really aware that we're you know acting according to these deep assumptions that we. I rarely stopped to examine. So, yeah. Um, well, I want to make sure we keep reading poems. So let's do a, another poem. And maybe a good one um, is um, that, um, where is it? Blathery performance is a good one talking about uh, the, these kind of concepts of the ego and, and trying to lose it. So that was yes, a that's, yeah. that's the one I was going to read next. Yeah, sometimes I like to, uh, well, part of my spiritual practice is is, first of all, you know, identifying what the ego is up to, just kind of seeing the pervasiveness of of egoic concerns in in one's life, and 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 kind of showing that up. You know, kind of taking the air out of that by by looking at it directly and having some fun with it. And this is a poem that does that. And this is um, a longish poem, um, and it's a very prosy poem. Blathery performance. Sometimes the ego is a one-man marching band, high-stepping down Main Street, pounding a bass drum with one hand, mouth-farting through a tuba with the other. That's how I feel anyway when I look back at some of my blathery performances, where I sharpen my wit on other people's weaknesses, reel off judgments and opinions like decrees, jump on every opportunity to say something funny, however hurtful it might be. When I asked a friend to give me the gossip about a certain writer's workshop where I teach once a year, she said there's tension around who has to drive visiting authors to and from the airport, and she doesn't want to do it anymore. That's it, I said. Friction over who has to pick up the big shots from the airport? That's all you've got? Laughing, but really looking for conflict, intrigue, gross incompetence, juicy misconduct while silently noting that no one offers to drive me. And then I launched into my spiel about MFA programs, their plenitude, the dependent dependency they spawn, churning out poets by the hundreds every year. We don't need any more poets, I said. We have more than enough already. I tossed off Philip Larkin's remark about how he missed the days when writing poetry was slightly disreputable and you had to hide your notebook under the bed when somebody knocked at the door. I trotted out my anecdote about giving a talk at the AWP conference on finding work outside academia and how a young woman, a recent graduate of an MFA program, raised her hand to express her anxiety that without a workshop and prompts and deadlines, she wouldn't be able to write. And my first thought was, well, in that case, you're not a writer. Of course, I didn't say that then, but here I was proudly proclaiming my unempathic thought, holding up my meanness as if it were wisdom. And then quoting Flannery O'Connor, 
who, when asked if she thought universities were stifling young writers, replied, they don't stifle enough of them. At this point, my friend frowned a little, but did that slow me down? Not at all. I pulled out another practiced remark about how in America, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And if having 20 MFA programs is good, 200 is even better. And thus the glut of mediocre writers with the unspoken implication that all this noise was drowning out the brilliance of my own work. Young people shouldn't be encouraged to write. So young people shouldn't be encouraged to write poetry, I said. No one encouraged me to become a poet, certainly not my parents, who thought it was a bizarre waste of time and suggested I learn a trade instead. And look how well I turned out. The conversation went on in this vein for some time. And you may notice that while I seem to be proffering these harsh judgments as examples of ego run amok and thus disavowing them, I am also giving voice to them and secretly hoping you'll agree with at least some of them. And then I announced that I had just been accepted into a mindfulness meditation teacher training program and how excited I was to be moving into a new kind of teaching, bringing my spiritual practice and my poetry into greater alignment, how I plan to offer a weekly poetry and meditation class. I could not feel the angels of irony looking down at me, down at me as I said this, but I feel them now raising their angelic eyebrows, scratching their celestial chins, wondering how anyone so mired in judgment could possibly teach mindfulness. Maybe you should try practicing it first, I can almost hear them thinking. And now I see that in describing, confessing my obsessive, relentless self-concern, I'm really seeking affirmation for my honesty, and that in admitting this hidden motive, I am further promoting an image of myself as a person of fearless self-awareness, and so on and so forth, down the infinite hall of mirrors that is the ego and its sly maneuverings. Ah, the ego, it won't enjoy being spoken of in this way, pinned to the page, undercut, exposed, its bag of tricks revealed. Even now, it's angling for an advantage, trying to make a comeback looking for a way to end this poem that will bring praise, applause, a prize, maybe even a ride to the airport, which is not going to happen. Yeah, that was great. That was a um, blathery performance uh, by John Brem from No Day at the Beach. And uh, there's so many directions I want to take it after after that poem. I'm not even sure which one to do. But, um, but do you think, um, I mean, one of the things I always think about is it how this this sort of industry of poetry, if you want to call it that or something, in a way it's it's cranking out poets like that with um you know, it, it is, I mean, it's a it's a pyramid scheme, you know, as it functions. But at the same time, um, poetry is a kind of meditation and we're sort of making um people have the kind of mindset where they notice things and enter that meditative space and have spiritual prayer. Do you think yeah. that um, that everybody can be a poet? And do you think that every poet is a Buddhist? I mean, those are two things that I always think about. Are, uh, are poets unwitting Buddhists? Because, you know, we sit and meditate and, and sort of try to lose ourselves in that space, and, and we're drawn to that. Um, yeah. and, and I think, you know, do, po poets maybe come out in a better place because of it. Um, and what do you think of all that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that I do think poetry is inherently spiritual in, in some way, you know, regardless of the, the kind of poems you write or the content. Um, I just feel like 
it, it is a, a an engagement with the world, uh, with one's own experience, with consciousness that is inherently uh, not materialistic. It goes against the grain of of that kind of conditioning and the, the cultural trend. Um, I don't know that I would say that it's it's necessarily Buddhist, um, but meditative. I mean, if broadly defined, um, I think that's true. I, I do think that, you know, I mean, my practice is I sit and wait until I feel inspired to write something. And that is is rather uh, unusual these days. And partly because of MFA programs, um, everyone that I know really uses prompts, you know, consistently or at least sometimes. And some people rely on them pretty, pretty exclusively. And and so that sort of um short circuits the the open kind of waiting meditative allowing things to arise to come into consciousness as they will um it's it's there's a little bit of grasping seeking in feeling like i want to write something so i'm going to use this prompt to get me there mm -hmm. and having said that i mean i have friends who use prompts that write these incredible poems that you just are so thankful that they came into the world and who cares if they came through a prompt or not. So I have I have mixed feelings about it. I'm not sure you asked if everyone can be a poet. And I think the answer to that is probably no. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to be a classical pianist. I, you know, I don't think that's gonna happen. Uh, um, uh, you know, or so there are certain kinds of predispositions that you need to have to become a poet and, you know, ways of working with language that just, you know, many people just not, you know, interested in. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we all have a sense of the poetic. We, we we feel it when it shows up in our lives, you know, in our experience, or somebody says something in a certain way, or you, you know, you read a poem, or you, you see something in the world, and you, there's a quality of recognizing, ah, there's mm -hmm. something magical there that you might describe as poetic. And I think we all have the capacity to engage with that and to, to see it and to know it. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say I think that you know, we're all poets as children. And then we, the ego takes over and we lose the capacity. And then, you know, poets as adults are people who are trying to go back to that childlike state of wonder yeah. and awe and, you know, that kind of, um, you know, holistic, non-deterministic comprehension that um, the children yeah. have and grasp for as they're learning about the world. Um, yeah. And so I kind of feel like they were all already poets would be my, my impression of that. Um, that's that's a wonderful way that's a wonderful way to put it that that's our that's our true nature when i was talking about like poems reminding us of our true nature yeah it's the nature that precedes the conditioning mm -hmm. that has the open curious alive enthusiastic joyful you know the everything is wonderful you know and you're seen through a, a child's eyes and, you know i'm writing about this wonderful haiku i want to share it with you uh by a poet named christopher harold um Cherry petals, a child adds a handful to the busker's cap. That's great. Isn't that nice? Mm -hmm, it is. <laughs> um, the, I think the so I think we agree pretty much about most things um, as far as this topic goes. But I think the prompts. I think um, we might have a big disagreement there because I think prompts are a way of turning off the the mind and letting you. Like I always think of. Um, Zen and the Art of Archery is a great book on writing, even though it's not. It's about archery. But, um, mm. you know, they say, um, you know, that you can't um, you can't shoot the arrow for the sake of hitting the target or the further the target will recede. 
Um, you know, you have too much willful will if you're aiming for something like that. And I think what prompts do is let you focus on something that's not important and then let the important things bubble up and let yourself sort of be lost. And I'd say it's the same thing as going to um, like a retreat. You know, you need that space. You need that certain kind of silence, the bell, the sitting um, to, to enter that space that sacred space, right? You have these kind of prompts in a way by going to a place like that. And then, um, and then, and and so prompt is the same thing, I think, where it's sort of like a scaffolding that you don't really need once you get there, but it helps you enter the right, the right mood, the right mental space. You might be right about that. You might, I've I've never thought about it in that way. I think you might, you might be changing my mind. I mean, the the sense that it, it comes from something else. So it's not, so the ego is, excluded from that Mm -hmm. like you're not finding something yourself it's kind of being given to you and so maybe there's a way in which that's kind of liberating i I like that idea and i think that's what uh formal poets do too i think you know in a way it's that focusing on something else that sort of distracts the the monkey mind so focusing on meter and rhyme lets the the subconscious mind come up and surprising things happen and be in touch with that that deeper, yeah. more connected, interconnected voice that we all have. Yeah, yeah, I see that. I think in my own practice, I just know my best poems have just come unbidden. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's something really wonderful about that when a poem comes in that way. And so it feels, uh, I have a kind of allegiance to that, that yeah. way of writing. However, I, I because I write that way, I don't write a lot. Um, not that the world is clamoring for more poems. I think they would. I love more books, John. I these, these, uh, I've read two of your three and they're great. Um, uh, so, so I'm curious though, how do the poems come to be? Like, do you know, like if you're waiting for inspiration, um, how does the inspiration come? Are you, are you, are you out in the world and then say, Oh, that's a poem that I need to sit down and write. Or are you Mm -hmm. like sitting at a desk with a blank piece of paper waiting for something to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the latter now, mostly. I mean, I, you know, um, there have been times where I've been out and poems will come to me when I'm out in the woods or just see something, especially when I lived in New York City, you know, I, I you'd see something on the street. I mean, there's just there's some drama is always happening. Um, and that would spark poems. And now it's more, you know, I get up very early in the morning and go to my desk first thing and, and just kind of create a, a sort of space for poems to come if they're ready to come. And but it's it's mysterious, you know. It's it's really it's really mysterious. I mean, the poem Swifts, you know, my father had died, and I saw this extraordinary spectacle of the Swifts. It's a yearly thing in Portland, and it's quite astonishing. And so those two things came together uh, and and generated the energy for this particular poem. So a lot of times it's circumstantial like that. Like things will just kind of arise and touch off the imagination in some way. And and sometimes, you know, I'll just wake up in a particular kind of energy, and I don't know how to describe it, but when it's present, a good poem always comes. And unfortunately, it, it, that doesn't happen all that often. But when it does, it's like I feel it, and it's like, okay, now I know a good poem is on the, on the way, and I get sort of taken over by it. Um, but I have not found a way to induce that. Mm-hmm. that energy to show up. Uh, 
yeah. But only if only you could. Um, yeah, so right. There's a bunch of questions already, but let me remind you, if you have any questions for John, leave them in the chat windows. Um, Facebook, there aren't many people there for some reason, but there's a ton of people on YouTube and a bunch of questions already. But leave your mm-hmm. questions on the Facebook or YouTube chats, and I'll pass some along. Uh, but let's keep going and, and hear another poem, John. Yeah. Um, what do I want to read? Well... Well, I'll, I'll read the title poem, and uh, you know, some some people have heard me read a, this poem before, but as my mother used to say, I won't hurt you to hear it again. Uh, no day at the beach, and this is a I, I like to use dialogue in poems, and sometimes I, I just build a poem entirely on on a spoken exchange, and this is a poem of that nature where it's it's just a straight up kind of transcription of a conversation that I had quite quite a while ago. No day at the beach. It's no day at the beach being me, I said. It's no walk in the park. I can see that, she said. Trust me, I said. It's no picnic. Clearly, she said. What's that supposed to mean, I said. I'm just agreeing with you, she said. You might have argued a bit, I said. Tried to convince me otherwise. Who knows, maybe it is a day at the beach being me. Or maybe it's a day at the beach being with me. No, she said, it's not. Yeah, that was the title poem from this book, No Day at the Beach, and a good example of the humor that runs throughout the book. And, um, you know, the, the, the Buddha was a, a humorous, you know, playful type of personality as well, so that fits really well. Um, how much do you think... It's interesting too. You talk a lot about about humor as being a negative thing in the past, as putting people down and 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 you know at other people's expense, and um, but then to sort of harness humor for a teaching purpose seems to be one of the things that this book is doing. So can you is that a conscious thing that you've tried to do is to regulate and reguide your humor into a, a better place? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a little more acceptable to make fun of yourself than <laughs> other people. <laughs> um, but yeah, at a certain point, you know, when I first started writing, I thought I, I just had the, the the sense that poems had to be somber and and melancholy and very serious and kind of dark, you know. Um, the deep image movement was really, uh, you know, foreground at that time, and and so poets like Robert Bly and James Wright, um, W. S. Merwin, there wasn't a lot of humor or playfulness there. It, it, these poets were very serious, and I kind of absorbed the zeitgeist. And then at a certain point, when I started reading the New York School, when I started reading Frank O'Hara and Kenneth Koch and um, John Ashbery and and James Schuyler and others, I started to see like, oh, poems can can bring in the full human response to our experience. So they can they can be funny, they can be playful, and when I saw that as a possibility, it just woke something up in me. And um, that's been a big part of my poetic press, poetic practice since then of, of just not trying to be funny, but just kind of recognizing the absurdities inherent in the human condition and the, the, the crazy things that we do and think and say the crazy ways we see the world and just taking advantage of the humor that's inherently there and having fun with it and you know i think yeah i think poems um that can generate a kind of shared laughter are really connecting that's a deep and healing connection when when we when we laugh in response to the human predicament that we're all you know we're all stuck in we're all trying to do the best we can and usually failing um 
and laughing about it is, is you know one way to make it a little more palatable <laughs> yeah for sure um let's see let's do um since the the, the poems uh, in the book sort of alternate between not really alternate strictly but between shorter poems and long poems do you want to read like two of the shorter ones maybe introductions and then nebraska yeah yeah that's that's a great idea um let me just see introductions 36 for introductions and then... 36, yeah 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 this is very short and this is this is a this is a poem in the voice of the ego introductions now i use my business cards to squash the ants that crawl across my desk so impudently it's as if they don't know who i am <laughs> And then introductions. And then uh, Nebraska's on page 52, if you want to. And actually, before that, let me read another really short poem called Etiquette. Okay. So which Here, page is that? Er, oh, sorry. Page 49. Okay. Etiquette. Here in New York City, smiling is frowned upon, and looking up, looked down upon. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And uh, yeah, Nebraska on page 52. Nebraska. After watching Nebraska, a film shot entirely in black and white in my home state, I told my friend as the credits rolled, you know, they shot that in color. That's just what Nebraska looks like. And he said, really? And I said, Jesus, no, man. Secretly happy, he considered it. <laughs> yeah, that was Nebraska, too, from uh, from No Day at the Beach. Would you say that all the, the short poems are written in the voice of the ego? Is that, um, it seem, kind of seems that way, If now that I think about it. No, not entirely. In fact, let me read one more that's not in the voice, that's in the voice of a kind of deeper consciousness. Um, it's called Walk the Talk, and it's on page 56. Walk the Talk. Sometimes I think human beings are just a way for words to walk around on earth, and words just a way for wind to hear itself think. Yeah, that is walk the talk. Um, and, and those poems especially feel like koans. You know, there's that short, um, you know, do, do you think poems, what do you think poems and koans have in common? Well, they can stop the mind, you know, stop the habitual momentum of the mind that is always trying to understand the world uh, in terms of what it already knows. And so with a con, you can't you can't do that. And I haven't done formal con practice, so I don't really know that much about it. But what I do know is that you can't you can't you can't think the same way that you think about your ordinary life and how you solve problems, you can't bring that to a koan and actually have an illuminating experience. It asks you to step out of the conditioned mind and to let go of, of the habitual ways of thinking and feeling and knowing and understanding. So, and I think poems can do that too. Poems ask us to see the world in a different way, to understand ourselves in a different way, to let go of what we think we know and see what else arises. Um, yeah. Um, well, here's a question from uh, Cindy Gore in the audience. She says, John, please share your thoughts about readers savoring moments in a poem. I think mm -hmm. we could, we all could enjoy poetry even more with this. So um, I think she's talking about something in particular. What, what's she talking about? Yeah. I talk about that a lot in, um, in the Dharma of poetry and in my own teaching you know, I invite students to engage with poetry 
with a poem, mostly through noticing and just appreciating, um, kind of entering the poem, um, not analytically, but in this appreciative mode. And part of that is to just stay with, like when you find a line or a passage or even just a word or a tone, uh, a, a movement in a poem, to really savor it, to just feel it, stay with it. Don't even think about it so much, but just let yourself absorb it. Let it kind of come into your system. Um, and that that has a kind of richness to it and an aliveness to it that is is really wonderful. And we too often skip over that and, and think, well, now I have to work on this or I have to kind of figure it out or I have to think of something smart to say about it, or I have to make sure I'm getting it. And same is true with our lives, right? I mean, we have beautiful experiences. We see things, we have interactions with people that are wonderful. And and we tend to, to skip over that so we can get back to our problems, <laughs> our default mode of like figuring out our problems. Um, and, and so savoring in our lives, savoring in poems can help us bring that attitude, that appreciative attention to our lives as well. So I think that's, I think that's really, really important. And it just makes, it makes it more fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, you read poems and you come to a, a stanza or a line that's just astonishing. You just want to read it over and over again. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to do. Mm -hmm. That goes along with something I think about a lot in that, um, you know, academic criticism kind of kills literature. Um, if you look back at this since um, since universities have been, have been the standard, and we've had those programs, um, not just MFAs but literature programs in general, there's a sort of need to generate criticism, and so the work that's held up is stuff that you know, like if you want to be um, you know taught in colleges, you know, the the key is to um, make a group and have a manifesto and then, uh, you know, have something that's changed that you can talk about and that you can have a critical sort of essays and books talking about. And so there's this whole sort of flow toward that kind of mindset of analyzing and picking things apart instead of just feeling. Um, do you yeah. think that that's, that's been a problem? You mentioned walking away from that kind of landscape when, when dealing with poetry. Is that something that, you're, that you think about a lot? It is. Well, you know, I haven't had any real contact with academia for quite a long time. Um, but, you know, in this new uh, collection I'm, I'm working on, I'm one of the things I'm writing about is when I was in grad school, po not poets, but professors and PhD students would often talk about interrogating a poem. And, and you know, seemingly unaware of or unbothered by the associations between interrogation and torture. And and I was struck by that, like to use that word, like that's the energy you're going to bring to the poem. I'm going to interrogate it because it's it's not enough to appreciate it or explore it or to love it <laughs> or to learn from it. You know, you had to like bring it into your power, you know, uh, and make it say what you wanted it to say, you know, by violence if necessary. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, and I checked this out with uh, my dear friend Heather Sellers, who who is in academia. And I said, you know, is that still is that still prevalent? And she said, yes, um, that that kind of that way of engaging poetry is still is still pretty dominant in academic settings. I think that's starting to change. I hope that's starting to change. But yeah, I think that's I think that's harmful. I think it, it comes from a desire to manipulate and control 
And I think many of the crises that we're now having to face come out of that that desire to control mm-hmm. rather than be with the natural world as it is. Um, this desire to master it and control it um, is caused, you know, just incalculable damage. And so that's a, that's an instance of that. I think the same kind of energy. Yeah, what Billy Collins says about uh, you know tying a poem to a chair and beating a confession out of it, or or whatever, however that goes. And also just, you know, talking about poetry as a spiritual uh, practice and, and poems being like prayers, it feels a lot too like the, um, you know, like the priest, the high priest interpreting, you know, the word of God for us. So we don't, you know, us mortals don't have to get in the way and then don't have a direct connection, which then justifies their position as priests in the, you know, the, the temple. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, it's just and fascinating how the world comes around and around, you know? Yeah. And I would say that I think there are, are lots of brilliant people in academia who are doing incredibly good work. You know, it's, you can't just sort of write off the whole mm-hmm. institution. But I think that those those kinds of ways yeah. of are still mm-hmm. unfortunate. Yeah, true. In the same way, though, that they're great priests, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. But right. Um, yeah, well, let, let's do another poem. Um, do you want to do that? That um, Which one was the longer one? Uh, the Dick's Kitchen Metaphysical? Sure. Yeah. Dick's Kitchen Metaphysical. When I set aside the book about knowledge of higher worlds and how to attain it, dog-earing the passage that explains why the initiate must listen without judgment to whatever is being said, however contrary or noxious it might be, the waitress at Dick's Kitchen asked me if I'm still working on everything. And I answer yes, because I'm not only lingering over my turkey burger and sweet yam not fries, but pondering questions of life and death and how to access the mystical realm that shimmers like a heat mirage at the center of all things. But when she further inquires if my food is still tasting well, I feel myself plummeting back into the lower worlds where all I do is silently correct my fellow human beings for the way they dress or drive or speak or think, peppering them with sarcastic questions or barking at them in my head head like a full-blown crazy person. How could you vote for that apoplectic, orange-faced, racist ignoramus? Or, oh, for the love of Christ, yes, you can turn right on red. That's been a rule for about 40 years. I guess they forgot to tell you. But then I remember the section on patience, forbearance, and non-anger, which I had been tempted to skip, that says, every symptom of impatience produces a paralyzing effect on the higher faculties. And suddenly I see them, my higher faculties, frozen like statues in attitudes of agony and strife, like Rodin's prisoners or Michelangelo's slaves, wisdom languishing in chains, compassion with downcast eyes, kindness struggling to rise from the stone. That was uh, Dick's Kitchen Metaphysical from No Day at the Beach. Um, I I keep meaning to say at the beginning of the show that there's an open mic afterward, and I forgot, so uh, let me say it now. If you have any poems you'd like to share, because there's a good number of people watching probably for the first time. If you'd like to share a poem uh, later in the second hour, um, I'll put up instructions, but have a poem ready, and you can join the Zoom. I'll give the Zoom link, and uh, you can share poems if you want. So everybody participate. This is always a participatory um, you know, thing. It's not just two people talking. It's a whole, uh, a whole group of people doing stuff and loving poetry and, and having that spiritual connection to the world, which we're all also fond of. 
Um, um, Jen, this is kind of a personal thing I want to talk about um, it, for me, because I'm a huge fan of Ian McGilchrist um, in The Master and Emissary, and I know you're, you've read Ian McGilchrist. And um, yeah. I wonder what you think, because I've never... So I talked to him in the interview for um, the winter issue of Rattle, which I don't think you see. I don't think you're a subscriber. I'll send you a copy so you can read it. But um, but I haven't talked to anybody who's a fan of McGilchrist and a poet and also a Buddhist. So I'm curious how you, what you think about his... Um, his concept of the right and left hemisphere and how it corresponds to Buddhism, because it feels to me, you know, if for people who don't know what we're talking about, uh, McGilchrist's work focused on all the research in, in neuroscience into how the left brain functions as the, the emissary that kind of thinks it knows it all, but doesn't really see the big picture. It has a very focused mindset. And that's kind of like the, the typical place we're in, worrying about bills and traffic in the office and you know all those kind of mundane little things we're focused on and then the right hemisphere has this much bigger holistic view of the world um but the the left brain kind of takes over and it feels to me like what we're doing always is is not really so much stripping away self-consciousness necessarily as, as the left hemisphere's control of our minds and letting the right hemisphere speak for the first time letting the master who knows more than us as the emissary speak do you feel like how that plays into poetry and Buddhism? Is that something that you're, I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think McGilchrist is just utterly brilliant. I mean, I, I think The Master and His Emissary is just, you know, one of those books that is is life-changing when you read it. I mean, you just suddenly see the world in a completely different way. And I've read parts of his latest book, which is even bigger than The Master and His Emissary, which is quite a tome. Um, uh, the matter with things. Um, yeah, I, I think that his way of identifying the different ways the hemispheres work, the different worlds they present to us, they have different ways of perceiving. Um, and so when the left hemisphere is dominant, it actually shows us a different world. And when it takes it's when it usurps the right hemisphere that world is is rather dead and it's a world that it the mind wants to control and manipulate um it loses its organic aliveness um and uh you know he he convincingly argues that that that's the fundamental problem that we have right now is that the we have created a world to reflect the left hemisphere's um ways of seeing and and the way it wants to order the world and and it's it's been hugely destructive and so i think spiritual practice the practice of poetry um is a way of affirming the right hemisphere way of seeing and being in the world and strengthening that and reminding reminding us of the richness of, of that when we, when we engage with the world from that perspective um how much more alive and sacred it is it's left hemisphere drains it it reduces the world to the most materialistic expedient um set of values that are just incredibly destructive Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, especially in politics too. It strikes me is that because the left is the either or, the good or evil. You know, seeing yeah. everything through those binaries, and then and then the right is and you know, and instead of yeah. either or, and um, yeah, and yeah, the right is also attuned to ambiguity, to irony, to humor, um, all those things that 
subtlety to gradations of meaning, um, all those things that you need to be a poet or to appreciate poetry or art of any kind, the left brain has no use for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives us a world where those things are absent. So yeah, that's, it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And I even think that the, you know, that feeling of Emily Dickinson's head being taken, you know, the top of her head being taken off is the hemispheres being in harmony for a brief period of time, which a poem can do. Right. Yeah. Because you need the left hemisphere to, to understand what's going on, to bring some order to to your experience, but the, it has to be in service mm-hmm. of, the, of the right hemisphere, that more holistic, organic way of of seeing. Yeah, yeah. But so great, you interviewed him. Yeah, I got to interview him. It was really fun over Zoom, just like this. So um, oh, we'll release God. it as a podcast too, I think. Oh, um, I, yeah, I have to watch that. I mean, yeah, he's, he's yeah. Amazing. I'll send you the the issue though, so you can read it. Uh, it's, yeah, this yeah. winter's issue. Um, yeah, but yeah, I've been a huge fan of him for ten years, so it was a big highlight getting to talk to him. Um, let's see. Um, let's do, I think we have two more poems you wanted to read. Let's do one poem and then one question and then one poem over the moon. And then we'll finish off with a new poem. Okay, great. This is the last poem in the book over the moon. And it's for my wife, Alice. 5 AM, the soft percussion of the rain on the slanted rooftop of my study. I study it. A single drop dropping again and again at one second intervals, like the ticking of a watery clock above my head. Off to my right, it comes down in loose clusters, an absent-minded thrumming of fingers on a tabletop, random, irregular, or falling in a pattern I can't perceive. It's too dark to see the rain as it falls, only the reflection of my room projected onto the empty space beyond my window an old Norse word made from two other words, wind and I. My bookcases float blurrily in the air above the alley. I tap the keyboard and words appear, and now the rain appears to be hesitating or reconsidering, though it will likely fall all day long on the bamboo trees I cannot see, the glory bower, the lilacs and azaleas readying themselves, summoning their flowers from the depths of non-existence, three kinds of Japanese maples, and the improbable ferns, huge and flame-like, heart-shaped, that edge the yard. Last night, we stopped and stepped backward when we crossed a sidewalk puddle where the moon had fallen between a reflection of root-like branches and swiftly passing clouds to hover underneath us. As above, so below, the old alchemist said, everything mirroring everything else falling and rising and falling. We lingered looking down and stepped over the moon and came home. Yeah, I thought that was Over the Moon, beautiful poem by John Brem. Um, there was one question about consciousness. I wanted to, somebody left, but I can't find it again. I'm sorry to whoever asked that. Um, mm-hmm. But um, maybe I'll keep looking for it as you answer this. But I'm wondering too, you know, we've really covered the way that writing poems is a spiritual practice. It's really, you know, it's great for the, the mind and soul to be encountering the world that way and creating things from that, that space where you're not the ego. Um, but what about sharing poems? Um, you know, it, once you've done that, why publish a book? Um, you know, isn't that the ego, you know, getting back in the picture? Um, is, mm. And is that okay? Mm. Well, that can be. I mean, yeah, the ego can can become a part of that process and sort of take it over. The left brain can take it over 
and use it as a as a sort of self-glorifying project. Um, it's it's hard to keep that completely out of it. But I think, you know, the real motivation is this desire to connect. You know, I mean, I think that's why we write. Um, it's a desire to connect and to share. And I think, you know, I think of poems as being, you know, a kind of relational field of consciousness. So the poem doesn't really come alive until a reader engages, brings their own consciousness to the consciousness that is embedded in the poem. And then there's this kind of alchemical reaction that that happens, this transformation where the consciousness of the reader, the consciousness that created the poem, which is still present there, they come together and there's the poem comes alive in that moment. So I, I think that's really important. And and I think it's it's most um powerful when it's done in a group, you know, when you have a group of people and you're sharing poems in this spirit where the collective intelligence of the group is lighting up the poem, then that that can be even more profound than than a solitary experience of the poem. But I, yeah, I think it's a desire to connect that is the the main reason to to publish the poems and to make them available to, to others. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer to that tough question. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess one last question from the audience, uh, Andrea Hollander's here. Uh, you probably know Andrea. Um, yeah. Um, you just shared a haiku by another poet. Can you talk about how haiku has affected you as a reader, a poet and a human? Oh, wow. As a reader, a poet and a human, you know, I wasn't much interested in haiku until, you know, about a year or so ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And, um, you know, I had read the great Japanese poets, Busan and Basho and Isa and some others. Um, and then I started reading more contemporary haiku. And there's a really thriving world of haiku writers who are just doing brilliant work, like Christopher Harold, the poet I read earlier. And I'm going to include haiku writers in this new anthology I'm working on that's going to come out in 2024. Um, yeah, I think, you know, Haiku is, is I think, most closely associated with Zen practice, and there's a quality of just this. You know, so in a haiku, you don't have room, for, there's no room for commentary for the mind to kind of get over-involved the way it can often do. Um, it's just a, a moment of, you know, kind of pure perception, and there's a kind of clarity and simplicity in that aesthetic that I, I find really appealing. And it's, you know, I've written haiku and it's a, it's a, you know, people think haiku is easy <laughs> and it's like, yeah, try it sometime. Uh, it's easy to write a bad one, um, but it's a, it's a wonderful practice. I mean, it makes you pay attention to the small things that you might not otherwise uh, stop and really look at or, or think much about. And that's, I mean, that's good for uh, the writer. It's good for the person. Um, to just begin to notice and see and um, bring that kind of simplicity and just thisness of, of the Zen way of looking. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That's, I mean, one of the two reasons that I, I end with a haiku every, uh, every episode. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, I guess you have a new book um, or new, new poems, new books in the work in the works um is there anything you can tell us about um the the new project you're working on and, and how these poems fit together or is it, are they just um the kind of thing where um you know you're just writing and seeing what comes up later is there a sort of a where, where you are in the book stage for another book well yeah i have another book that's actually in process right now so it's it's um 
it's going to come out in September from Wisdom Publications, and it's called Dharma Talk. And so it is even more explicitly engaged with the Dharma. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's a lot of short poems. There's haiku in it. There's some longer narrative poems. Um, but uh, the Dharma practice is more foregrounded. Um, and and so, but that book is done. And um, yeah, it'll be out in September. And then I'm working on a new anthology called The Poetry of grief, gratitude, and reverence. Mm -hmm. And these are poems from 20th and 21st century, mostly American poets, but some European poets as well, South American. Um, and there are poems that uh, I feel, even though they're not, many of them are not by poets or Buddhists, they, they embody and reflect the Dharma in ways that I think lend themselves to spiritual practice. In, in really beautiful ways. So I'm hoping, too, that that book, like its predecessor, The Poetry of Impermanence, Mindfulness, and Joy, will be taken up by people who are engaged in spiritual practice. It doesn't have to be Buddhist practice. And that the poems will be supportive of that and illuminating of the uh, human predicament and the, the state we find ourselves in and the way these beautiful beings, these wonderful poets, have responded to that. It's It's a joy to to bring these incredible poems, poems to, together. I have three poems by Andrea Hollander are in the book, and um, but there's just a wealth of extraordinary writing that's being done. And it's a, it's just a, an honor to be able to, you know, gather together the poems that I find most compelling and to, to create a, a, an experience in the book that is coherent and cohesive and, and rich and alive. Yeah, well, that's great. We'll definitely have to have you on for a, for a segment uh, when those books come out, too. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so, the, so you wanted to read a poem from the new book. Uh, this is Morning East uh, Wallingford, right? Yeah, and this is a poem I wrote a few uh, summers ago um, in Vermont. Morning East Wallingford. Morning in East Wallingford, not to be confused with Wallingford proper, down the road a few miles here in Vermont a bifurcated village. Nothing much is happening. We had a thunderstorm last night, and now bullfrogs are squawking from the pond as if the storm had lodged fragments of thunder in their throats, a wet and rubbery sound, mildly insistent, counterpointed by faint bird song against a backdrop of highway traffic, cars and trucks, the human contribution to the soundscape. The luna moth we found last night affixed to the porch railing is gone, swept away by the wind, probably. A fabulous creature, green and leaf-like, with delicate orange ferns for antenna and a curlicue on each wing, added for what purpose? A mystery. My wife is asleep upstairs, her mother and father a little further down the road. I sit here feeling content, even as I know the world as we know it is ending. Happiness resting in the pit of my stomach, a calm excitement, my mind free of anger, resentment, ambition, regret. 12 raindrops hang from the window sash, gathering weight. One or two look ready to fall, but who knows when that will happen. Hurled, light-filled, each one a condensation of cloud called downward by invisible forces, just as we are, falling but not yet fallen, held between earth 
and sky, then and now, and now the rain begins again. Yeah, that's a great poem. Uh, that was uh, Morning East Wallingford from uh, John's forthcoming book. Uh, what was the title of the book again, John? Dharma Talk. Dharma Talk, that's right. So look for Dharma Talk. Uh, this fall coming up. Uh, John, thanks for being a guest. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, it was just a lot of fun and, and great poems, too. You really can't beat this. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It's just wonderful. All the points of connection that, that we discovered, really delightful. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Thanks, John. Take care. Thank you. And that was John Brem, and uh, you can find all of John Brem's work at johnbrempoet.com. That's John with an H, Brem, B-R-E-H-M, poet.com. So find his website there and, um, and, and order his books because they're wonderful books, especially I really want a copy. I'm glad he's going to send me a free copy. I appreciate that of, um, of um, uh, the Dharma of Poetry. That's going to be great reading. But uh, thanks again to John for joining us and, and sharing all his work today. Um, we are going to take a quick break and go to the open lines. <clears throat> now, how the open lines work, I'll put this on screen. First, before you do anything else, email your poems so I have them here and can show them on screen while you do it. Email your poem if you'd like to share one to OpenMic. That's openmic at rattle.com. Then I'm going to grab the Zoom link and throw it in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube. You can join us, but only join us if you want to share a poem because the stream just continues right where you are. If you just want to sit and watch, it's the best place to watch is on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. Because um, you can read, the, read along with a poet and um, you don't have to do anything. So just stay tight. But if you want to share a poem, email us at openmicatrattle.com. Then join me at the Zoom link. And uh, we'll see how many poets we have. Sometimes we have a chance to read two, usually just one. Um, there was a prompt this week. They can be prompt poems. They can be poems about current events. They can be poems you published recently and are proud of. Whatever you would like to share, come on over and share it. And uh, I'll be right back after a quick break. We're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, you know, like I said, please join us on the open lines if you got something to share. We have uh, ten people here already, so I think we'll have to have one poem a piece, or maybe two really short, like micro poems or something like that. Um, definitely a two-page max, something like that. I'm going to share something if you'd like. Now, the prompt for this week was to um, right here write a poem using a word list. Read part of a book and write down a list of ten words that stand out most. Use those 10 words to inspire your poem. That was the prompt that was given by uh, last week's guest, Dion O'Reilly, um, sort of unwittingly or something. We were talking about uh, the way she writes, and this is the way she writes, by uh, making lists like this. Um, not always, but, but sometimes she writes by making lists and then using lists to inspire poems and push poems forward. And um, it's one of those examples of the way that, that your mind, your conscious mind, can be preoccupied by something that lets the unconscious take over. And so, so I did the same thing. I did that with uh, the John Brem's book. So as I was reading John Brem's book, I went through and wrote down some words. So I got up to 10 and then uh, went on a hike with the kids again and uh, came back when my mind kind of fresh from, from John's writing so it wouldn't just be copying where he went with the words. And um, then I did my own thing. And here is my poem for this week. This is called The List. I was marching off, but there it was, the angel of happiness, perched on a handrail outside the old community bank, now called a business park. Another word, it seemed, for parking lot, where rows of cars would park a lot, in all their shades of gray. It was all the rage, this kind of rainbow. It was all the rage, this kind of life. I had to stop, and who wouldn't stop in that puddle? The loud curtains of last night's rain slowly filling their favorite shoes. 
The angel chirped and squawked its wisdom, as angels often do, as if knowledge itself was a kind of nut it chewed. In fact, it nearly looked exactly like the squirrel it might have been, its matted fur a kind of rainbow, too. Of course, I thanked it before marching off, my two sponges called socks squishing against the weight of the pavement, a new plan to put a plan in my pocket, already folded neatly in my pocket. So that was the list, uh, my prompt home for this week. Let's see what you have, and let's go first to, um, let's see, let's go to Katie Dozier, because Katie was uh, the last guest on last week. Let's go to Katie first this week. Um, hey, Katie, how are you doing today? Good. That was a great poem, and I loved the interview. Thank you. Yeah, it was a fun one. I didn't know anything about John Brem, as I usually don't, of the guests. And <laughs> um, and it turned out that, that we had a lot in common, and, and I really loved his book. So it was always fun to find. Yeah, uh, yeah. I went in a, a different direction with the book that I chose to pick from. Um, but I did do the prompt, so this is a prompt poem. And this was inspired because I have gotten into reading poetry with my five-year-old and we were reading uh, Where the Sidewalk Ends because I loved all the Shel Silverstein stuff when I was little. And it's really exciting to see her get into poetry and really connect with it. Mm -hmm. So I picked my words from there, which is like a little challenging. And I think the words that were chosen from Shel Silverstein will be fairly obvious as I read this. So. Okay, well, let's hear it. This is a Ode to Bippity Bim. <laughs> yeah, always great to start out not able to pronounce the title as I'm doing my own poem, but I'll try my best. Okay. Ode to Bappity Bim for Shel Silverstein. God bless you for writing words like sneezes, chaps and raps and elephants. You make handstands on the very grass the others rake for typos and scared the bejesus out of my mom's wallet back at the book fair, where boa constrictors snuck skinny-tongued sips of lemonade, and we never found the elephant that stole my peanut butter sandwich. Trumpeting along on an exclamation mark of a tricycle, the crickets no longer chirped because instead they dared to warble, and at the playground not mulch, but a sea of sprinkles. I laid down, my mouth a tumbler for your raining words, the path back, a sidewalk that, it turns out, never ends. Oh, that was great. That was... Uh... Oh, to Bappity Bim. Bappity Bim. Um, yeah, I definitely. Said it wrong. <laughs> yeah, the Shell Silverstein influence. You could hear it in the voice, too. Thanks for sharing that, Katie. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks. Yeah, take care. Thanks. It was uh, Katie Dozier with Ode to Bappity Bim. Let's go next to. Um, let's go to T.R. Paulson. Hi, Tim. Hey, T.R. How are you doing tonight? Good. Rare Monday off. Yeah, that's great. Maybe uh, after the, the busy rush. I can't even believe how much, like how many hours a week did you work? Did you work a ton extra um, because of the holidays? Yes and no. And we hired so many seasonal workers that it was, there wasn't a lot of hours, but it was six days a week. And I mean, it is what it is. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> Yeah, Merry Christmas to you too. I'm a UPS driver for them. <laughs> yeah, I should have I should have clarified that exactly. Um so so what do you want to share? I think we do have to do one poem. Well, there's sonnets, right? They're short. We could do both, I think. Yeah, it's a sonnet and a short guzzle. Yeah, maybe we could do both. They're both like half page. Yeah. So so what do you want to share first? Um, I will do um I'll do the guzzle first. Okay. Um, it's in Blue Unicorn, and um, it has a long story behind it. I wrote it 
I wrote the first version out of it way back in 2001, and this is a spinoff of it. The first version was sort of a really rhymy Dr. Seuss type poem. And um, there's a long story behind it, and I know we don't have a lot of time, so I'll just read the poem. Okay. And I don't know which one you're sharing on screen. Are you scared? It may be a different version because I'm doing different because the PD, the um, word version I sent you is different than the published version. I'm, I'm going to read the published version, but the word version is the current version that I'm trying to play with for my manuscript and everything is confusing and messy. So if it doesn't quite agree with what's on screen. Um, okay. I'll show the, uh, I'll show the, the print, the, the published version. The word version. Yeah. Okay. So it won't quite agree with the pub public, the published version. Published version is titled, you can't tell the wind not to blow. The paper fluttered between us. I didn't hear his reply in the wind. It was only a drawing, a morning glory tossed and defied in the wind. On the farm, they were weeds, those trumpet-shaped flowers, white laced with faint lines of pink. They would hide in the wind. Those crop dusters swooped like birds of prey until the breeze came. They flew away after dropping white markers to dry in the wind. In the storm, our frost-covered cows tossed their heads to fling dry alfalfa leaves from their mouths in a cloud to my eyes in the wind. The tractor sputtered to life. My father hooked up the blade, and we plowed, and snow swirled to the roadside in the wind. Some people are lost pages from books. Some are dust or flags. Fluttering leaves are the snow. Some are sails that fly in the wind. My friend took the page from my hand and looked at it again. Look, T, he said, you missed the one who walked by in the wind. Uh, that was great. That was You Can't Tell the Wind Not to Blow. And then um, I guess I, I want to do both poems and move on, but but I want to ask, what's the difference between the two? Like, why? how is the book, you know, it's a definitely a totally different title um, in the, uh, so, so what is it that, that, why does the book have a different sort of version of the poem? Well, because my editor, one of I, it goes back to the conversation today, actually. Mm -hmm. My editor told me that, made the comment, well, your poems are really good poems, but they all read like prompt poems. Uh, you need to think about how they fit together and tell a story in an arc in the manuscript. So I tweaked some titles and, and sort of tried to make the my speaker more consistent. And so there, that's the tweaking. And, I'll, and one of the themes in my manuscript is the idea of unrequited love mm -hmm. gotcha perfect well so the title yeah. worked better mm -hmm. excellent and then let's hear the other one too the uh the sonnet and this one i'm super proud of um it's in best new poets and it was originally an um a anthology put together called poets speaking to poets um poets speaking to Poets, echoes, echoes and tributes. I don't have that, that version in front of me because I'm so excited about the. Yeah, oh, congratulations. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it sort of got life twice. Yeah, that's always great. Let's hear it. And it, too, is a prompt poem. It's after Richard Hugo's book, The Treasuring Town, which I think most of us have read and enjoyed and which I highly recommend to anybody who hasn't read it and enjoyed it. Birds never nest here. You've never heard of my town. It straddles forgotten river where the main street trestle, now broken, once crossed. 
Now a ferry paddles back and forth Sundays. On the west side stands the butcher shop, the tenderest meats. On the east, his wife picks grapes and cherries, bakes pies to feed her other lover, a concrete mixer. We pray at dinner here. Barges carry guests of every faith to downtown docks. We put down pillows and towels in spare guest rooms, serve pancakes and the ancient books. We pray. Those who don't repent just disappear. It's a mystery where the butcher finds his prey. The nearest ranch, 400 miles away. Ah, that's great. As always, uh, wonderful formal poems. Thanks so much, uh, TR, for sharing those. And congrats on the book you're working on. Well, congrats will be due when I, when I actually find <laughs> oh, I'm sure you will. It. I'm sure you will. Yeah, but I'm glad you're putting one together finally. Thanks so much, TR. Yeah, good to pop in and say hello. Yeah, glad to see you. Okay. It's Tara Paulson with two poems. Let's go um, next to um, <clears throat> Spartacos because he's somewhere. It's very late wherever he is. I'm not sure where. Uh, sometimes he's in Greece. Sometimes he's in the UK. Sometimes he's traveling. But uh, Spartacos, are you there? Hi. Hey, Spartacos. How you doing? I'm doing well. Happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, happy holidays to you. And where are you calling from tonight? Um, I have moved to Cyprus. Ah. So different place, more sunny. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, good idea being down there right now. Um, and let me see if I can find your poem. What do you have to share with us? Um, I've got a prompt poem. Um, a rope in balances or roses. Excellent. Let me uh, put it in a uh, Word doc really quickly, and then we'll pop it up on screen. So this was the prompt poem. What was the source material for it? Um, I used some poems from Cavafis. Mm-hmm. And I just... Um, have chosen some words that they stood out. Excellent. Yeah, well, let's hear it. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Um, the poem is called Voices. Um, so, when a robin balances on roses, every night I need to decide where I should go. I write names of places on small pieces of paper. I put them inside my hat. Then I choose one, and I hope that I made the right choice. A guilty mind is always suspicious. How many dreams, how many nightmares, how many thoughts, how many voices gather together. I am gathering my ideal household items, like an ant before I move again, pots, and kettles, beloved poets and suitcases on the go. Outside, the wind speaks his mind. The palm trees with their tangled hair can hear the music. The moon, a circle, a dot, a full stop for every new sentence, every night. Yeah, excellent. Great poem. That was um, When a Robin Balances on Roses by Spartacus at Agnostris. Great, great to have you on again. It's been a while. I know the timing isn't great. What time is it there? Um, half past four in the morning. <laughs> there you go. Did you? Yeah. Are you staying up late or did you wake up early? Um, I wake up early and it's holidays now. Mm-hmm. Um, so more time for myself. Oh, glad to hear that. Yeah. Thanks so much. Always great to see you, Spartacus. Thanks, Tim. Yep. Nice to see you again. Yep. Take care. Yeah. Spartacus with one of Robin Balances on Roses. Um, let's go next to uh, Mark Grinier. Hi, Tim. How's it going? Hey, Mark. Good. How are you doing tonight? Oh, not bad. 
Uh, I thought I, these are not prompt poems. These are just poems that I happen to have written recently. Okay, yeah, um, they're they're two, but they're short, so feel free to read both of them. So, okay. uh, anything you want to say about either? Uh, no, not really. They're just what they are. Okay, well, let's hear it. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, jacaranda, jacaranda pebbles scattered on the ground. Some keeping their color, some gone gray brown. Two two colored path on concrete or clay. Mortality's emblem, the end of a day. Excellent. Yeah, I love the rhymes there. Thanks for sharing that, Jacaranda. That was beautiful. We have a lot of them um, uh, by the office in Rattle, Rattleland. There's a whole street full of Jacaranda trees. Yeah, that, there, there's a lot of them around Southern California. So mm-hmm. now I can't seem to open the other one. Let me see. Let me try another. Okay. Another place. Okay, and the other poem is Emergence, and this is a, a shaped poem. Um, it's uh, based on my, my poor garden. The green hornworms have stripped the leaves, and my tomato plant stems are a leafless dream. The winter leaves are dry twigginess here, there, while on the ground brown pupas change until wings unfurl into moonlit sky. As spring comes in, new eggs are laid, and tomato plants raise their banquet leaves for hornworm greed to fatten up on. I'm almost afraid to accept that change from chrysalis to eating leaves, from locked alone in the darkness there to making more new eaters to share. Darkness suggests what cannot be changed while appetites bring lost dreams today's oh excellent great sounds as always thanks for sharing that emergence uh bart grinier thanks so much mark thanks yep have a good night yeah two poems by mark grinier next up let's go to karen marker <clears throat> hello hey karen how are you doing tonight good i'm um responding to i i love the talk tonight and this idea that we um a poem needs an audience, and then so I'm being brave to put myself out tonight. Yeah, that might have been the best. It was a tough question, you know. If you didn't have an answer, you know, you'd already thought about it. It'd be tough to answer that, and uh, I thought he could take it, and then he did. That was one of the best answers to a tough question we've had on here, I think, because it, dude, it's a true. A poem needs an audience. Yeah, and and, it, and it's wonderful because here we are. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, happen. thanks for being here to everybody watching too, because we need you, even if you're not yeah. uh, sharing poems. We need you listening. So um, this poem was written to a Mary Oliver prompt from her poem called Good Morning. And it's um, about the fact that we need to be dazzled by at least 10 things every day. Good morning again. My mother died on December 10th. And 17 years later, what I remember are the little hooded things, the jack in the pulpits and their quiet sermons how still we must be to hear them and the sparrows in the ferns, all that's hidden in the forest under the bark and broken branches, the fungus growing, the mushrooms popping up everywhere after the rain, how it looks at the edge of seasons, most of all in these shorter days between fall and winter, the luminescent liminal moment right after the sun sets the lingering light I learned from her to see and be dazzled by. All that lives right here on my street, the magnolia tree that's given up almost all its leaves and is not yet 
abutting the wonder that comes when my body walks out the door this morning into the world, holding everything she named and taught me to love. Oh, that was great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Good morning again. That was Karen Marker. And it's just wonderful. We have so many. The open lines here must be the best open lines anywhere. When we had a live reading series, I always felt that way too. Um, You know, people, you know, we just have great poems. Thanks so much for sharing that, Karen. Always a pleasure. Um, Yeah, Karen Marker with with Good Morning Again. Let's go uh, next to um, Carla Schwartz. Hi. Hi. What a great night. Yeah, here. great night of poetry. Thanks for joining us, Carla. What would you like to share? Okay, so I, I have two poems. They're very short, but I'm going to start with my prompt poem. Okay. Um, I have the word basket down at the bottom of the poem, and it's called Remembering My Mother on Her Birthday While Riding to the Grocery Store. Excellent. And what poem is it? Um, What's it written? So I, I took um, – I went to um, poetry – the Poetry Foundation website, and I just looked up a, bun- a bunch of Diane Seuss poems, and I just got, you know, uh, I, I got a, a number of words that I pulled from there, and I have the list Yeah, there, there you go at the bottom. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. Remembering my mother on her birthday while riding to the grocery store. A day not too warm for northern December. The wind pinches my face with its fingertips. The secret of not freezing is to keep moving. The superfluity of celebrating a birthday after death. Tears slip from my cheek to my tongue. Rivulets of tristesse carved into my wet skin. I roll down our driveway past the dried scat flecked with hay, the miniature loaves stacked innocently, some flamboyant coyote marking its trail. I pedal to the grocery to beat my exhaustion, to disappear, to pick up some beets. I ride to the grocery in defiance, waiting for no baking it, the opposite of grief. Oh, excellent poem, Carla. That was great. Remembering my mother on her birthday while riding to the grocery store. Great poem. And then you have another short one, too, that you right. um, wanted to share as I, well. I thought, you know, I told last time, or one of those times, I had a poem that appeared on uh, the Inquisitive Eater. I actually had two poems, and I read Applesauce. So I sent you a link, I believe, to the mm-hmm. other one. Yeah, I have to it To right the both. Again, yeah. Okay, rhubarb. Okay. To check on your rhubarb, I tuck my sharp knife double wrapped in plastic bags under the bungee of my paddleboard and head out to your dock. Summer is soup right now, hot, viscous. I find the rhubarb, great stalks, as thick as my wrist, long as my thighs. I pull out my knife to make the clean cuts. I know why I know why I cannot restrain myself. I've had your rhubarb on my mind ever since last summer your gift so large so plentiful don't think i'm crazy talking to a dead man don't think i'm stealing what would go to waste i hope i'm hoping i honor your life to taste the sour in a pie Uh, another great one that was rhubarb uh thanks so much for sharing that carla 
You are welcome, and thank you for this wonderful night of poetry. Yeah, always my pleasure. And that was from The Inquisitive Eater, which is still, I think, a really interesting magazine, inquisitiveeater.com, New School Food. Uh, fascinating, just what people have and, and how much opportunities to publish are out there in, in interesting ways. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. Nighty-night. Yep, <laughs> night. <clears throat> okay, let's go next to um, Bishwajit Mishra. Hi, team. Hey, how are you doing today? Okay. No, I'm good. Thank you. And Merry Christmas and happy holidays to all. It was a wonderful interview. And this is the first time I ever watched a full interview live. Ah, great. Well, I'm glad you Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed it. And like coincidence, I've got kids at home with a dog and the reno going on. So I came to the bedroom sitting cross-legged <laughs> and I watched gentlemen talking about buddhism spiritualism and ego <laughs> oh, that's so perfect that <laughs> excellent yeah i can't beat that okay okay so you have two so, i think you have two short ones too right yeah the first one the second one the interview motivated it so i thought i'd take a long shot if i get a chance the first <laughs> one is the one i had sent and i didn't write it uh, based on the prompt but i thought it's on the same probably pattern uh like um Diana or O'Reilly's poem, so I sent it. Uh, it's called Devolution. Space to land, land to animal, animal to man, man to man, soil to paper, people to flags, critical is flying, must be higher, comparative. To what is a wipeable board? Lions roads reverberate in smoke homogenized jungles and rebound on the walls. Good for frame pictures, hallowed, with wreaths of paper flowers that are almost immortal. Oh, fascinating poem. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, uh, Devolution, Devolution. Yeah, yeah. Devolution. Yeah, thanks And then uh, your second poem is, uh, yeah, this isn't too long either. Yeah, so what, The Advisor too, yeah. right? Yeah, it was written a long time ago. I was waiting for my daughter to pick her up uh, at her college, and I, it was, I was waiting in the library, and I wrote on that computer, and I was not a regular writer. It just came out of nothing. Mm -hmm. It's a, one of the fewest rhyming poems, if it can be called that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the advisor, I'm so wealthy with the riches overflowing. What do I do with it? Not really knowing. Heavy it is and so very gross. Not sure if this is really green or just some moss. For I know not if there is room with anyone to take some from me, as I brood day and night, never thinking thou to come out of it free. I sometimes believe there is none as generous as me, who can only give and never take up any. Oh, give, I sure do, unasked and unsought ever so. If you have not tested my treat, pray come and take it now. Ever ready and willing, I am with my donations day and night. You will not find a provider as willing and ready at sight. Dreaming with it to give away, I'm always fluent. Does not matter if for the receiver it turns out fluent. With this wealth ready for distribution, the large me romps like a buffoon. When I don't know, it's just a small me inside a large empty balloon. Always in the tide, never with an ebb. Oozing out, it is to be given with no need to wrap. Oh, if I could find a way to turn its flow inward, 
that would sure make me move forward and give me the sight to see the beauty as ugliness lies in the eyes of the beholder at the sea. Friends, see how tricky is that little me and how zany with this poem too is trying to win points round. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. The advisor, <laughs> uh, Fishwit, excellent poems. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Good night. Yep. Good night. It was the advisor, uh, the second poem by uh, Bishwit, Mishra, Bishwajit Mishra. Let's go next to Stephen Croft. Hey, Tim. Hey, Stephen. How are you doing this evening? Uh, doing good. I'd like to read a Poets Respond poem. And I think, I feel like it's a downer after the spiritual calm of the featured poet. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm going to take us to current day afghanistan yeah this which is, is what a, we haven't really you know it hasn't been in the news much lately we just kind of ignore you yeah know, what's going on um, there too yeah i still follow it though mm-hmm. um so uh this is my contributor's note yesterday i wrote this poem about the taliban's return to public floggings and executions remembering zarmina whose 1999 execution by the taliban in Kabul's Olympic Stadium played on U.S. news programs, along with the Taliban's destruction of the giant Bamiyan Buddha statues in the run-up to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Today, I read the Taliban has banned university education for women. When I was a soldier in Kabul in 09 through 10, students would approach us when we were around Kabul University mostly to practice their English. The young women were bolder than the men in approaching. I am sorry for what has happened to Afghanistan. I was hopeful for the country back then. Excellent. Let's hear the poem, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the Zarmina, her execution is is famous as a still, sort of like um, Tank Man, in Tiananmen Square is famous, uh, the burning monk in Saigon, also taken from a still, yeah. um, taken as a still from uh, from an actual uh, video. This is Ghost of Zarbina, daughter of Ghulam Haznat. Kindness was the eggshell blue of morning sky over sweep of brown mountains gathering caraway with laughing children in the summer green valley of fir trees and wildflower, stroking the soft hair of a young goat to give it my joy. Anger was my husband's harsh hiss, cussy as he whipped my arms, my backside numb, and after my daughter killed him was the Talib's harsh hiss, harsh hiss, kneel daughter, as he put the barrel to my skull, my life kneeling in its last dust before thousands. Sadness is staring, my tears sliding like rainwater down the window of a three-room stone house in coast as my daughter's husband threatens a pumpkin on a pine wood table, butchers it to pulp, points the dripping cane at her knees and hopeless eyes to the floor. Bitterness is the rules of the Taliban. 
their hangings, stonings, lashings, cutting off the fingers of young girls for painted nails. Fear of leaving my children was my stadium floor plea to Taliban. Now hope devil gin will curse them rustles like dried moths in wind. Yeah, great ending, especially in such an important poem that uh, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't see it in the news or in Poets Respond anymore. What's going on in Afghanistan right now after the withdrawal and all that? So, so thanks for sharing that important poem. Okay, thank you. Yep, take care. Yeah, that was uh, Stephen Croft with uh, "Ghost of Zarmina, Daughter of Gulam Asnat." And uh, let's go next to um, let's go to Mike Bales. Good show tonight. It's always nice to throw in a little philosophy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks for joining. Uh, what do you got for us, Mike? Um, I want to read my po- my prompt poem. I think I sent it to you last Tuesday. Yeah, poem, Street, Talk, Street Talk, right? Talk. Yeah, I got it right here. Yep. Um, I became friends with this Wisconsin poet. I think she's great. Married Joe Balistrieri when we were uh, featured readers in Naperville mm-hmm. for this one event. And um, she taught, she promotes me pretty well, but she's great. Um, I read her book still. I'd recommend it to, to, to people. There's a spiritual edge to it. And it has to do with her life story and her life situation, mm-hmm. losing some people she's known. And uh, I took six words from her book, from poems in her book still. Uh-huh. This is the poem, Street Talk. Okay, let's hear it. Most conversations turn to gray sky, hushed winds after a change of weather. Monday, another page of a chapter. A man who lives in alleys and on streets speaks to gargoyles and facades in shadows by gray buildings downtown. He laughs his hebrew laugh, a convocation to his angels and gods. As passers-by say he's crazy, as he listens to a voice no one else can hear. As he listens to a voice, he's crazy. As passers-by say his angels and gods, a convocation too, he laughs his hebrew laugh. And shadows cast by gray buildings downtown, speaking to gargoyles and facades, a man who lives in alleys and on streets. Monday another page of another chapter hushed winds after a change of weather most conversations turn to gray skies that's oh, a palindrome yeah. yeah oh really most conversations yeah Wh- which one is a palindrome this poem street talks a palindrome oh really oh very interesting yeah thanks so much for sharing that okay thanks yeah thanks mike there's mike bales with street talk from the prompt next up let's go to angela gartner Hi, Tim. Hey, Angela. How are you doing tonight? Good. Real good. Hope you had a good holiday. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I hope you did, too. Yeah. It was cold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right, because you're in Chicago. What was, like, the... How low did it get? Do you know? Well, I mean, I'm I'm in Ohio, Oh, you're actually. in Ohio. Oh, okay. That's okay. Um, but, yeah, it was, what, the windchill was minus 25, so... Fun times. <laughs> <laughs> Where in Ohio are you? I thought I really thought you were in Chicago. No, I'm in like Northeast Ohio. Oh, gotcha. So you're cool, yeah. Oh, okay. So, 
Oh, okay. Um, and yeah. so what do you have to share for, with us tonight? Um, well, actually, I was going to share my poem I had, but you know, it's been cold and I, 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 um, I sent you, if old man winter told me a secret, I wouldn't remember it next summer and I revised it. So uh -huh. I emailed that to you. Yeah. I have it right here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about being cold. Cause I feel this, um, this year, I don't know. It just felt like it got darker earlier and mm -hmm. it just, <laughs> It got colder earlier, um, but it, hopefully that, that won't last. Yeah, but. and the days are finally getting longer, too. So today was a little bit brighter than yesterday, and that'll be the case for a while. Yeah. <laughs> it, will, it will get a little, because they sold it like that, you know, they got a little lighter. And, mm -hmm. But um, but I'm just, you know, I just don't like the dark this year, so I just want it to be lighter. Yeah, so. me too. Me too. Okay, let's hear it. Sour milk wash is on the skies. He's here to shorten my days. The other side where sun shines, he's in the mountains waiting to spray film from his inhaler. It's mist spring sweater, sweater weather. He stands in the snow, his long thin body in a mammoth coat. I think about his gaunt eyes as his blue fingers are tapping on his phone's weather app to tell us about icy droplets. He will stay in my backyard until he dips into the corners of spring rains. The birds sing when he melts in the shadow puppets of the trees. He then hides until the falling leaves. As the sun reaches its northernmost point, I forget his frigidity. Oh, excellent. Yeah, definitely. Is it, is it warming up? Because here, you know, the jet stream is like... You know, it's it's that uh, that looping jet stream, and we uh, we hiked, and it was like shorts and a t-shirt, and uh, you know we were hiking over snowbanks, but it was like it was very nice. I think the high was sixty-five. Is it are you gonna <laughs> get that anytime soon? Well, it's gonna be in the like fifty-one uh -huh. at the end of the week. Well, that'll so feel it good. Is gonna, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's gonna warm up, but it, it will get cold again in January. It just we go through these spells where you know it gets really cold, and then it melts everything, and then mm -hmm. gets cold again. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, take care. Stay warm, Angela. Always good to see you. Good to see you. Have a great night. Yep, you too. Angela Gartner with If Old Man Winter Told Me a Secret, I Wouldn't Remember It Next Summer. And uh, let's... Um, next up, let's go to um, Richard Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Richard. How are you doing tonight? Well, I'm kind of upset. I broke my string. Uh-oh. I have I have I have this listened straight through to every rattlecast, every one uh -huh. since May of 2020. 2020. Wow. <laughs> that is yeah. a, that is some I, string. I, I came on my first one and it, you know, a lot of it was I had nothing else to do during uh -huh. COVID. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but just made it appointment work and I missed it and it looked fabulous. Yeah, it was a good one. So you get the experience of watching it back on replay at least. Yeah, uh, so I'm I'm happy to join. I'm happy I got got to hear open my open lines too. Um, yeah, but you rushed in so fast but, you didn't even take your coat off. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I I've been had my wife drive home because she she drives faster. Really? Oh, that's great. Uh, so let's hear. I think we let's just do. You have two poems. You can do both if you want. We're we're kind of well, that, that your call. I'll read I'll read the cat poem and then if you think there's time. I'll yeah, read I think the there's only only Brent left and then so that's good. Yeah, go ahead with both. Okay, uh, and I didn't do this week's prompt poem, but I I 
probably have never shared this with you, but my uh, Rattle Poetry Prize finalist poem was a pick a list. Oh, really? Then, oh, very yeah. interesting. I didn't know that. And uh, did you, is that a prompt you heard from somebody or is that just, how, how did you know about that? You. Me? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're you had us go to random word generator. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we've done and so much I, stuff that I just forget. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, sure. And I pick 14 words, and uh -huh. I think I each one in a line of a sonnet. So. Oh, wow. That's great. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the way that it, we, we were talking about, the way uh, prompts inspire the unconscious to emerge and flower, and and that's a great uh, that, example of how it can work. That's exactly it. You know, the, the pick a word, and you start going, and you have to fit the other ones in, mm -hmm. and it goes magic yeah all right well go ahead so, with this the cat lost in a storm okay the cat lost in the storm is a test is a cat lost in a storm the cat i don't like much slipped out this morning it was 30 below if you count wind chill if you don't you've never been out in it scraping ice off the blacktop shoveling snow from the walk watching the wind pick up and drift a new blanket over your work making new work, which you're happy to do while shouting the cat's name, Simmy. You search in all the places he sleeps most days, the tool shed, the corner of the porch, the perch in the workshop. You're shaking a plastic bin full of his kibble. By now, you're crying a bit, missing him, thinking of him at your feet under your desk, his purr sneaking its way into a line of a poem, missing even that annoying mew, 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 mew he makes when he's bored or hungry. Before dark, Deb goes out to look. One last time, even though she thinks he's dead. She sees Simmy darting under the barn. She comes back to the house, announces the good news of the season. I grab the kibble, throw on a few layers, and follow Deb and hear the mew, mew, mew. I shake the food container, talk to him nicer than he's her ever heard from me. Sim Sim pokes his head out to see, and I pounce like I've seen him do, wrap his shaking body in my arms and traipse through drifts back to the house. I um, was crying then, I'm crying as I write, and I think... I might actually like that cat for now. <laughs> that is great. And I can definitely relate to that experience. Same thing happened to me uh, with our cat, which I never really got along with, Dante. And yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah but he came back. We got him. <laughs> and uh, he came back, and <clears throat> I think a few, uh, I will like him for a few days. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was, Dante was mean. He, I don't know. We didn't get along. But, uh, yeah. but I still was sad when he, when he got yeah. him. It's like yeah. you're responsible for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so the other one was the color poem from from uh, last week. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Currently titled Brown 1957, although I was cautioned by somebody that somebody might think that's Brown v. Board of Education. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll probably have to retitle it. Brown, Mary told me, is the color of royalty. Brown, she said, is the color of your beautiful eyes and the bark of trees. She leaned over the zinc laundry basin, scrubbing the collars of my father's dress shirts. I sat where she always put me, snugged in the half-full clothes hamper beneath the stairs, and plied her with questions. Why did she wear a blue and yellow robe to our house? 
Why did she change into the gray uniform when she arrived? Why was her skin the color of coffee? And she told me, her mouth full of her mama's Alabama drawl, that she was a queen and her man Kent a king of all Africa. She told me more stories of her kin, of how they all lived in palaces trimmed in the same gold, under skies blazed with the same blue as her dashiki, how Kent's old panel truck was painted to remind them of the savannah and of carriages her people rode in before times. Before what, I asked, and she stopped her scrubbing, turned to face me, and in a low voice, like it was meant to be a secret, said, now that's a question you should ask your mother. Uh, great ending to that poem. Brown, 1957, called for now. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that, Dick. Excellent, as always, and great to see you. I was a little worried when you were, you were appearing on. I was like, oh, no, is, he, is Dick sick or what's going on? So I'm glad he got on and uh, good to see you tonight. Good to see you, too. Yep. Bye-bye. Yep, take care. There's a Dick Westheim with two poems. And here comes Brent Stauffer leading up the, uh, the, the anchor man in our bowling league. <laughs> <laughs> hey Tim, how's it going? Good. How you doing, Brett? <laughs> oh, I'm great. I, I I wish that um I didn't have to follow Dick. That's that's a it's always a tall order. Yeah, come right after. Dick, definitely but, is, but yeah. but you live up to it. You live up to it. So let's see here. What what do you got for us? Well, I got a poem that um, puts the rough in rough draft. But um, <laughs> it's a list poem, uh-huh. although you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't be able to tell. But I guess that's that's part of the uh, the way this one plays out. Um, <clears throat> it's um, I was I got the words from uh, Zagajewski, uh, his book uh, Mysticism for Beginners, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and um, so that's probably all you need to know about it. I'll just go ahead. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, for Zagievsky. Zagievsky. I just found out today that that's kind of, I mean, I'm sure I'm doing it wrong, but that's kind of how you say his name. Oh, yeah. I always I always said Zagajewski, mm-hmm. but that's not it at all. Yeah, there's so, somebody who had a tweet that went viral that was like how to pronounce like four different poets that we love names. And we, oh, yeah. it was completely <laughs> wrong for everyone. So uh, you're not alone. Like, Milos, I'd probably get that wrong. Exactly. Yep. But, yep. <laughs> but at least we all know who I mean. We do. You know? We definitely so. do. <laughs> okay, here we go for Zagayusk. Now you are counted among the dead. I carry a handful of chrysanthemum flowers through the darkness. When I lay my head on the track, I can feel the hum of a rushing train, but don't know if it's coming or going. The world is an empty shell, washed up on black sand, each room in it twice the size of the last, and lacking echoes. I've never been to Krakow or Gdansk, and don't speak a word of Polish. Well, maybe one, Solidarność, though I'm sure I say it poorly. The raven on the white rooftop shrugs his onyx shoulders from despair or indifference, only you can tell us. Where have you gone, endlessly restless and gray, into what immortal nowhere? This poem is a nautilus shell, bursting with flowers, hurtling down tracks of darkness. Now you are counted among the dead. 
Uh, great tribute poem. Yeah, excellent poem uh, for for Zega. I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> now that you've said it. Adam, there Adam. You go. Well, yeah, we'll call him Adam. Such yeah. good friends. <laughs> yeah, well, it feels like that when you read their poems, for sure. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brent. Always yeah. a pleasure. Great Thank to see you, you out there. Yep. Thanks, everybody. Yep, take care. That was Brent Stauffer. And uh, let's really quickly see uh, what else we've got um, on the uh, email list. I have a few minutes to do a few poems, maybe. Um, let's see. <clears throat> so Nivedi DeCarthic is here. She didn't, couldn't have a chance to uh, record audio uh, like she often does. But let's look at her poem. I'll throw it up into the uh, Word doc here. And um, as Nivedi says... Let's see. The book I chose in uh, is Snow Country by Yasunari Kawabata. This novel, uh, this short novel, is a beautiful read for its prose that reads like beautiful haiku. I chose 11 words, phrases from this book and penned this poem. Um, and here we go. This is, um, this is, uh, is it titled? I think it's untitled. But let's, let's hear it. This is a Nivedita Karthik. There we go. Okay. Effort flows within me, roaring like the rain, superimposed on the void till it shines brightly like the Milky Way, which, like the great aurora it is, shrouds me as I stand at the edge of the earth, the edge of the earth where only women really can, where I am the blue icy blade of the moon, where I am the stars that swiftly ascend into the evening, dispelling the quiet, chilly loneliness I was before. Oh, those great last three lines are great. Thanks for sharing that, Nivy. That was, um, and you can see the, uh, if you're watching on, uh, on uh, that listening, you can see she bolded the words that were taken from there and great weaving uh, between them. Thanks for sharing that, Nivy. Um, let's see what else we've got. We've got one more. This is, um, this is Brian O'Sullivan. And uh, let's check this one out. This is another prop poem. There we go. This is Brian O'Sullivan. He says, my word... Uh, my word list was generated by a word cloud program when I pa- pasted in about a week's worth of daily poems from Rattle. That's interesting. The words were orphan, eye, problem, man, hand, mother, sympathy, parent, and woman. And his poem here by Brian O'Sullivan smiles at a funeral. A man stood at the front of his childhood church. At 51, he was newly orphaned. His voice came haltingly and his face flushed hard, though the pews were filled sparely and mostly with family. He spoke of how when his brother at restaurants would glare at him to hurry and catch up and finish eating so they could leave, his mother somehow always had a little more coffee to finish. So it wasn't his fault. Problem solved. In the front pew, his brother, no longer a flame-haired fiend, laughed with his eyes, with a glint of their mother's empathy, and the smiling eyes of the woman whom the man loved made a a beacon, so that though his face was still flushing, he went on. He recalled his mother's solution to the problem of belief. When he'd asked, do you believe in leprechauns? He had said, I'd like to believe. And when he'd asked, do you believe in Uri Geller? She she had said, I'd like to believe. And when he had asked, do you believe in dinosaurs? She smiled but didn't laugh and said, I'd like to believe that, to believe, dear. When he said she'd showed him that sometimes wanting to believe is enough, the priest surprised him by catching his eye and smiling, encouraging him to go on to say that he wanted to believe that somewhere a woman was standing in front of her door, fumbling with her keys and pale, 
Her little shih tzu came running up to her, and behind the dog came her husband with a surprisingly robust head of hair flowing behind him, and he took her hand, and the man's parents were happy. This he wanted to believe, and this, for a moment at least, he did believe. Outside the church, through the gray clouds, a sunlight smile breaks. And that last bit was a haiku. So this is an interesting hymen. Thanks for sharing that. Once again, Smiles at a Funeral by Brian O'Sullivan. Uh, thanks, Brian, for sharing that prompt poem. And I do believe that is it for... Um... Oh, here's a quick one, too. This is why Carlton Johnson popped up on the um, Zoom and then he had to disappear. Um, this is the earliest color prompt, and uh, it's Today in Blue. So let me read Carlton Johnson's poem, too. Today in Blue. Again, we'll make it big enough so everyone can see it, and then uh, we'll dive in. Today in Blue, it's a prose poem for those uh, just listening. Here we go. Today in Blue. <laughs> Editing your poem here, Carlton. Okay, Today in Blue. Today the prompt was earliest color memory. I don't have an earliest color memory. What is a memory? What is a thought? What is a permutation? I consider my earliest memories growing up in, a, in Cleveland, Ohio, where winters were staged in terminal whiteness as truckloads of white snow were heaped onto our home on Edge Hill Road. I can recall the spontaneous joy the dropping of flakes brought to my young heart. I recall getting suited up with boots, the kind that buckle, a warm snow outfit and knit gloves so I could go glumphing out in the rich, heavenly, marshmallowy, frothy whiteness to build a snowman or make a snow fort. I recall going out with my sister, who was two and a half years younger, in an equal her her hermetically sealed outfit. I think hers was white and mine was blue. But life was fun back in the day when all the worries vanished with the next snow melt. That is great. It takes me back to, to uh, Rochester, New York, very much like Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Carlton. Always a pleasure. Always happy to read if you try and make it and can't. Um, let's see. And here, actually, well, one late addition, too. Here's a hospital green. This is uh, Steve Horrell. And, and if you're wondering why uh, color poems are coming up, that was last week's prompt. Um, the earliest color you can remember was the prompt. So here's Steve Horrell, who just one minute ago sent this poem um, and asked me to read it for him. This is a uh, hospital green. There we go. Hospital green. First thing you notice, entering the children's ward lined with bile-green walls, what we ever after called hospital green, already enough to make you sick. First hospital stay, 11 years old, appendix removal, nice big scar. First night after the operation, everything so strange, bed firm, crisp, clean, but smelling weird. Odd rumbling building noises, machine fans clicking on, off. Waking, nights, a woman screaming, no, 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 and sobbing in the hallway just outside the room. Nurses trying to calm her so as not to wake every child on the ward. Too late for that. Her son just died in a bed just like mine. I cried for me, for him, Hospital Green hemming me in. Yeah, poignant memory there, Hospital Green. Thanks so much for sharing that, Steve. Uh, Steve Harrell. And uh, that is going to be the show for today. Let's do the Saiku really quickly. And the Saiku for this week is right here. I don't remember. I did this earlier. Usually I do it like the night before. And this time I did it uh, a few days before. And um trying to get a little little ahead of, ahead of time with uh, the holidays. This is uh, the prompt or what, what triggered this poem for me. And uh, here we go. Let me kind of 
clear out the clear out the thing so maybe we can see it. Um, yeah. There we go. That's a little better. Scientists find key reason why loss of smell occurs in long COVID-19. And uh, the reason some people fail to recover their sense of smell after is linked to an ongoing immune assault on olfactory nerve cells and an associated decline in the number of those cells. Um, and so so what's going on is basically um, people are continuously being attacked and those nerve cells are being killed. And that's why it extends much longer than other things. I lost my sense of smell a couple weeks ago. And uh, well, I had, it turned out it was the flu though. And I got a sinus infection. And I thought it was COVID, but it turned out there was influenza A. And uh, but I lost my sense of smell. It was a very strange feeling, like nothing existed in the middle of my brain, which was very weird. And um, anyway, so there's some research into long COVID here and the, uh, the loss of smell that a lot of people have experienced. Um, and here is the psyku that somehow comes from that this week. The psyku is this. Missing heartwood, the old oak still stands for something. Missing Heartwood, the old oak still stands for something. That is your Saiku for the week, and that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody. It's been a great one. Uh, next week's prompt is right here. I don't, hopefully, uh, I've wanted to do this prompt since the interview with, um, with uh, James Pennebaker about expressive writing and um, how, how writing is healing because it reveals secrets that you haven't expressed, right? And that's why it allows you to sleep better at night and, and all sorts of things if you reveal, even if you don't share it. And it made me wonder what would happen if um, you shared it but used figurative language, and so you didn't actually share it literally in a way that anybody could um, could understand, but you still got it out in a way that you understood. And so I was, I was kind of curious about that since that interview last year. And so I meant to do this prompt and kind of forgot about it, then remembered again. This is write a poem about a secret, but use extended metaphor to keep it a secret. So that is your prompt for this week. Think of something that's a secret that you've never told anybody or told few people, but then don't get in trouble. Uh, keep it a secret, but write about it in a way that nobody can tell what you're actually writing about. And we'll see what happens. Uh, that's the prompt for next week, uh, the secret poem. Uh, hope you hope you participate. And if, if you don't want to, if it's too dangerous, uh, feel free not to. But um, I don't want anybody incriminating themselves and, and doing hard time and in jail for something. But, um, but if you think that's fun, go ahead and do that prompt. The next week's guest on the Rattlecast will be something a little different. Um, Emily Ruth Hazel. Is I'm a great poet and uh, performer of poetry too. I've had her at our uh, live reading series back in the day. Um, but instead of a book, she doesn't have any books of poetry. She has Wild World, wor- Wild Honey Words, is the name of a business that does sort of poetry embroidered on things. And I thought it would be fascinating to talk to her about that, about different places we can use poetry, not just books and traditional publishing. I'm always curious about that. And so um, Emily Ruth Hazel has great poems she'll read too, but then we'll talk about Wild Words Honey and other things that she's doing to spread poetry in different places that we don't expect or usually see it. So that's going to be Rattlecast number 175, uh, Emily Ruth Hazel and the Secrets Prompt, Monday, January 2nd, the usual time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. This is going to be 2023 too, so um, be ready for that. Hope you have a great weekend. Hope you have a great, uh, a great rest of your 2022, and I will see you next week. Good night.